And now, for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, but five, force five. Hello, listeners, new and old. Welcome to the Force 5 Podcast. If this is your first time here, I am your host, ex-video store clerk, wannabe screenwriter, and fellow listener, Jason Kleber. The fantastic Billy Ray Bruton joined me for the show, and he was just such a delightful guest. He's on a bunch of other podcasts, too. You'll definitely want to listen to those once you're done with today's show. We'll have more on his various outings here in a bit. The topic Billy Ray chose was a, it's kind of a tough one for me. But it's one of his favorite film subgenres, and that's suburban ennui. For those of you who have not heard that term before, don't worry. We'll clear it up for you when we get there. According to Stephanie Wells, a literary professor, the weirdly specific genre started in 1970s literature by writers like Updike and Cheever. What was it about this aspirational niche of the American dream that so often led those who had achieved it into despair or alienation, loneliness, and boredom. Books and films epitomizing this genre bring about themes of things like technology and sexuality, marriage, whiteness, class, parenting, and the yearning for home that even home itself cannot satisfy. So I'm really excited to get into that list with Billy Ray here. Now, uh, first, on the last show, I talked about unraveling realities with Script Apart's Al Horner. Great show, in my opinion. It was a topic that was really deep, and I knew we'd get some good responses for those that we missed. So here are some of those from across social media. Friend of the show, Pete from Middle Class Film Class, had a few suggestions. The Island, an underrated Michael Bay film, if I do say so myself, Never Let Me Go, Planet of the Apes from 1968, that's a good call there, and Soylent Green, yum. Derek McDuff said Interstellar and Minority Report, which um, I need to see Minority Report again soon. I haven't seen that for years. Rob Kelly said Jacob's Ladder via email. You can get a hold of me via email, force5podcast at gmail.com. And Bruce Perky from Find Your Film, who I think is going to be on the show pretty soon, said Perfect Blue or Paprika over on the Cinematics Facebook page. By the way, I've, I've basically cut off all Facebook presence for the show. I just hate Facebook so much. I would have gotten rid of Facebook completely if not for the cinematics group. So if you're one of the few that still uses Facebook and wants a great group to talk film, check out Cinematics. If that name sounds familiar, it's also a great podcast. And one of the hosts, Greg Sersavasti, was on this show a while back, and he can also be found there. So yeah, there's your Cinematics plug. Jump on. Join conversations about hot dog fingers or just get infuriated that Pete's over there destroying 4K slipcovers. Anyway, let's talk about what I've seen since I last talked to you. Now, last week, I had a couple of um, newer films from 2022. I reviewed Ambulance and X, and I'm going to get back to some obscure, kind of weird stuff here. The first thing I watched is from 1994. We're going back in time a bit here. And it's a film called A Low Down Dirty Shame. You guys don't want to mess with me. I just got fired from the post office. I could flip out and kill everybody in this room. They call him Shame. He's a private investigator who just wants to leave his past behind. Could you be joining us for lunch, sir? No, I think I'm going to have mine to go. But his past... He tried to take my business, my life, and my woman. ...is about to catch up with him. Now, I told you he'll be right down here. Look at yourself, Shane. You're taking on suicide jobs just to make a buck. Now, I've only got three days. I'll find them, too. He's 
got something to prove. Blink and black will be the last thing you see. Someone to protect. Just promise me you're gonna smoke his Like a pack of cools. A new partner to break in. You telling me Mike Tyson can beat Muhammad Ali? That's right. Mike Tyson can't spell Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali can't even spell Muhammad Ali. And some occupational hazards Woo! to avoid. He's with me. Oh! Coffee's good with cream, but better when it's black. Same. A private eye is hired to find the only woman who can testify against a ruthless crime lord, his ex-lover. When this came out, I was 13, and I remember wanting to see it so badly. Like, you'd see the previews, and um, eventually a kid down the street got it on VHS, and I, we watched it repeatedly during summer vacation. It just became, like, one of our daily staples that year. I, I probably haven't seen it since then, and I didn't remember anything about it. But I saw recently, as I was perusing something else, that the Rotten Tomatoes score was a measly 5%. And I thought it had to be better than 5%. So it's about this dude, Andre Shame. He was a Los Angeles detective who somehow led an assault against a drug dealer named Ernesto Mendoza in Mexico. Uh, the logistics of that are never explored. Unfortunately, Shame and another officer, Sonny Rothmiller, were the only two people to escape the raid alive. Shame was fired from the force and then became a private investigator. In the very first scene of this film, we start to understand why the Mexican raid was unsuccessful. Shame is terrible at project planning and even more troubling executing that very plan. The cold open involves he and his secretary Peaches infiltrating a mob diamond handoff in a scene that feels like it was written by a 12-year-old version of me, with a bag of diamonds that look like someone went and bought a package of jewels for bedazzling and dropped it into a stereotypical velvet bag for the exchange. Shane gets into the room by hiding, of course, in a giant false container built into a maid's cart, and Peaches just rolls him in with her master key. Inside the room are four armed men, of which I'm sure Shane had no idea how many people would be in there. After surprising them by popping out of the cart like a stripper from a very clean cake, he dual wields and asks Peaches to leave, even as she offers to help hold the men at bay. And here's where my first question comes in. Why bring Peaches in the first place? Clearly this puts her in danger. It's not like they had to knock on the door since she conveniently had a master key. Just leave her out of it. He tells her to go bring the car around, but we find out shortly after that she's not even driving the car. She's sitting in a limo with the clients who hired Shame to nab the diamonds. As the scene plays out, Shame delivers a series of wisecracks and eventually gets into a gun battle because he's an idiot and clearly does not understand combat tactics. He never attempts to take the guns from the men in the room, and once he has his hands on the diamonds, he just turns his back and runs as if he knows he's going to get blasted. He's also failed to devise any kind of escape plan and in all honesty should have died right there. But no matter how much danger he's in, he'll always try to find a quiet moment to crack a joke. As an action comedy, his ineptitude could have been part of the movie's charm if it was played up as a character flaw. Instead, it's implied that Shame always gets his man, which leaves you wondering how he's struggling to pay his bills, especially when he's putting himself in these incredibly dangerous situations. It seems that, in addition to his inability to plan and execute a job safely, he's also an awful businessman. His financial troubles are just told to us and not shown, as he drives a really cool convertible, wears a nice suit, and has a wall full of guns in his nice Los Angeles office. Keenan Ivory Wayans, who also wrote and directed the movie, infuses shame with the personality of a waterlogged catcher's mitt. 
His one-liners are clearly meant to make theater audiences howl with laughter, but instead reminded me of that kid in class who thinks he's a jokester, but everybody else just wants him to shut up. His antics in the film, like acting homosexual or posing as a radio DJ on the phone, feel like they could have been left on In Living Color's cutting room floor. The jokes and situations that were supposed to be funny feel dated, either because of the more accepting world we have worked to create, or because of its continuous reliance on 1994's pop culture references. The two gay characters in the film are solely there to be used as punchlines, and overact to the point that one might think they were pulled straight from the men on film skits. There are two bright spots in the cast. The first and loudest is Jada Pinkett Smith's role as Peaches. She's like a live-action version of Scrappy-Doo, cocksure, brash, and brings a much-needed jolt of electricity to the film every time she's on screen. She's obsessed with soap operas to the point that she commits assault because of it and for some reason likes shame. Unfortunately, Wayans didn't really know what to do with her, so most of the time she's shelved for one reason or another until the next time she's absolutely necessary to move the plot forward. During the main showdown with the villain, she simply says, I guess I should just go wait in the car, huh? And then leaves, instead of, I don't know, picking up a gun and shooting the bad guy. The other standout here is Charles S. Dutton as Rothmiller. In one particular scene, a frustrated Rothmiller has a little don't-you-know-who-I-am moment that's really great and feels like a precursor to Denzel's nervous rant in Training Day. Unfortunately, the more he's on screen, the stupider he gets, leading to a fight with Peaches that has several Home Alone-style moments that make you wonder how he ever became a DEA agent in the first place. A low-down, dirty shame fails on so many levels. It's not fun, it's poorly made, the script is nonsense, there's no real reason that anyone would be rooting for Andre Shame to succeed. As a character, he doesn't grow, he doesn't change, in fact, nobody in the script really does. The film either needed to have a harder edge and could have leaned into Shame's deficiencies, starting with thinking he's cooler than he actually is, or it needed to go full-blown comedy, since it has some moments that felt like that's where it wanted to be. In his review for the film, Roger Ebert wrote, Take away the guns, and this would be a movie about too many characters and no way to get rid of them. And that about sums it up. And 5% on Rotten Tomatoes? Yeah, that's about right. The other thing I watched is a made-for-TV movie from 1980 called What Are Friends For? A girl whose parents are going through a divorce moves in with her mother and befriends a very damaged tween named Michelle Mudd. I was up really late one night this past week playing Rocket League. I still play this video game Rocket League. It's fantastic. And normally when I'm on there at night, I'll listen to music or I'll listen to a podcast. But for some reason, I just really wanted to watch something on my laptop on the side. So I jumped on YouTube. Uh, recently, I've been listening to the Made for TV Mayhem podcast, which is an awesome show that's obviously about stuff that was made for TV. And they did an episode recently about after school specials that really stuck with me. So I just typed in ABC after school special and hit play on the first one that came up which was what are friends for for those unfamiliar with abc after school specials uh, just a little backstory here these short films ran from 1972 until 1997 and were basically 45 minute dramas based on hot button issues that were affecting kids at the time and most of the time were targeted towards teenagers they were essentially warnings that were intended to be watched as a family to foster constructive conversation afterwards about things like teenage pregnancy, alcohol and drunk driving, drugs, hell, even the dangers of hitchhiking got one. Growing up, I never really watched these because nobody else was home when my brother and I got home from school. And I'll be damned if I was going to let specials like The Day My Kid Went Punk or My Dad Lives in a Downtown Hotel get in the way of watching the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. So I hit play on What Are Friends For? And I'm almost instantly hooked. 
like put the controller down, this has my complete attention because the opening shot feels like the opening of a late 70s horror film. We see various creepy dolls being placed in frame for close-ups, and when I say creepy, I mean it, these things are dreadful. The dolls are part of Amy Warner's collection. She's a 12 year old girl who's in the process of unpacking them because she and her mother just moved into an apartment after a divorce. Amy hates her dad because of it, even though her mother continuously explains that the divorce has nothing to do with her and she should still talk to her dad who has since moved on to a woman who has three kids of her own. Fortunately for Amy, she's not the only tween in the apartment complex, but unfortunately for Amy, the first one that she befriends is Michelle Mudd. At first glance, Michelle is kind of an odd kid, someone who marches to the beat of her own drum. She and Amy bond over the one thing they have in common, divorced parents, something that was way more rare in 1980 than it is today. The other girls who live in the complex, like Nora and Barbara, warn Amy about being friends with Michelle. In Barbara's 12-year-old words, her mother didn't think Michelle was a proper playmate. Let's just say Barbara's mother was right. During a trip to the beach, Michelle ponders, if there's a way to get Amy's dad's new family to disappear. And then we cut to the movie's first black magic scene. Yes, we get a fucking black magic scene. A Tibetan seance during which Michelle makes Amy promise her loyalty, ending with Michelle saying, you realize if you break our bond of friendship, you'll probably die. It turns out she's got a morbid fascination with loyalty, and loyalty for her means never being friends with anyone else. If this sounds weird, it only gets weirder. Turns out Michelle has serious emotional issues that we can imply came from her parents' divorce. She's a compulsive liar, continuously pretends to be sick, and has a habit of stealing things. And when her father announces he's getting remarried during Michelle's birthday dinner, she goes off the deep end. In a bonkers scene, Amy walks into Michelle Mudd's apartment, hearing some of that Tibetan chanting, and walks into the bathroom, where Michelle is on her knees, in full ghost white kabuki makeup and robe, in front of a symbol painted on the wall in red, drowning a doll that looks like her father's new fiance in a bathtub full of what appears to be blood. This reveal was scary as shit, and I could only imagine how many 12-year-olds were scarred by this when it actually aired. Later on, Michelle sneaks into Amy's house and drops off a package wrapped in a newspaper, and I swear to God, I thought it was gonna be Barbara's dead dog. Fortunately, the reveal was much more innocuous than that. Now, most of these ABC after-school specials had a message to them. Don't drink and drive. Don't hitchhike. Don't get knocked up. That kind of thing. About 30 minutes into this, I seriously thought that the message here was going to be don't get caught up in the occult and that people would start spontaneously bursting into fucking flames. Of course I was wrong. But the message here, the, the actual message was no less heavy for kids. The message being that sometimes relationships aren't worth salvaging for some people. Amy kicks Michelle's crazy ass to the curb and in doing so, learns that just because her mom and dad couldn't salvage their relationship, it didn't mean that she and her dad couldn't have one. And of course it wraps up in a pretty neat bow because of the audience it was intended for. No murders, just words, all in a good 45 minutes. These ABC specials helped launch the careers of many actors over the years, including people like Jodie Foster, Rob Lowe, Jennifer Grey, Michelle Pfeiffer, Ben Affleck, Sarah Jessica Parker. There's a ton of people, and there's a few familiar faces in here as well. The character of Amy is played by Melora Hardin, who has had a long career in movies and on TV, but is probably best known for playing Jan Levinson on The Office. I actually thought she did a pretty good job here as a clueless kid. Her psychotic friend was played by Dana Hill, who had a long voice acting career in Hollywood and played Audrey Griswold in European Vacation. 
As far as after school specials go, I thought this was highly entertaining with some really creepy shots and the character of Michelle Mudd is definitely one that I won't soon forget. This film was available on disc as part of an after school specials DVD set, but it is since long out of print. Check it out on YouTube. It's pretty, uh, you know, it's it's um, not great quality, but uh, I'll link it in the show notes. I really suggest you watch it just to see how screwed up these 45 minute time capsules could be. At one point, record store chains ruled the music world. Here in 2022, that scene seems like somewhat of a relic. But if you live in the Windy City, record store snobbery is still just an L train away because of today's sponsor, Championship Vinyl. Located in an area that attracts the bare minimum of window shoppers just north of Wicker Park, you can spend hours flipping through your favorite records, CDs, or even cassette tapes. It's easy to get lost in here, but thankfully there are a few experts that can direct you to your favorite artist or just chastise you for your shit-tasted music. Whether you're looking for the newest Beyonce record, deleted Smith singles, or original, not re-released underlined Frank Zappa albums, Championship Vinyl is the mecca for music in the Midwest. Tell the owner Rob that the Force 5 sent you for a free Sonic Death Monkey sticker with any LP. He'll probably also start a music-related top 5 list with you, but that's all part of the Championship Vinyl experience. Speaking of experience, let's get to Suburban on Wii Films with Billy Ray Brewer. Welcome back to the Force 5 Podcast, this time with a little gravy, because today I'm joined by Billy Ray Bruton. I need a deep breath for the rest of this intro here. Billy Ray is a writer, director, actor, producer, film festival programmer, managing director at $3 Bill Cinema, artistic director for Scripts Gone Wild, and the host of two podcasts, Movies with Gravy and The Incinerator. Billy Ray, did I miss anything? Um, I think you got it all. That makes me seem far busier than I actually am. 75% of the time I'm laying on my couch with my dog just doing jack shit. <laughs> That's okay. That's all right. Billy Ray, I've been a big fan of your uh, podcast work. First off, I think Movies with Gravy is great. And your appearances on screen drafts are always an instant listen to me, even if I'm not a fan of the topic that you guys are covering and, and drafting for. And I think everybody should listen to both of those shows. But... I want to spend a little bit of time here at the top talking about your newest podcast endeavor, a show that I'm going to be on later this week as this podcast touches people's ears, the Incinerator Podcast. For those unaware of the cinematic tragedies that you're inflicting on planet Earth, what are you throwing into that incinerator? Well, so I should start by giving credit where credit is due because the incinerator is sort of the bastard stepchild of two other podcasts, screen drafts being one of them and film spotting being the other two of my absolute favorite podcasts. I've been listening to film spotting for over a decade. And um, so essentially we bring on a couple of guests uh, before the show begins. They've sort of curated a list of 20 films and then we have a special secret guest called The Engineer who adds five films to that list and calls all sorts of mayhem along the way. They take turns throwing titles into the incinerator, inflicting various amounts of cinematic damage along the way. And there's only one film standing at the end for everybody to enjoy for the rest of eternity. And um, it's it's kind of evolved since the first episode. It changes a little bit every episode. It's it's starting to slowly now settle into what I think its final form will be, which is exciting. But yeah, so far it's been just a, a, a damned riot. Yeah, it's a great show. I can't wait to be on. We're going to be talking Miramax films, throwing those into the fire. So definitely after you listen to this one, go check that one out. 
Now, coming on this show, I was worried that you're going to pick something like top five movies about fire. And then I was excited because I was going to be able to finally talk about Howie Long's Firestorm on the air. But So I used to have the Howie Long Firestorm poster hanging on my wall. Um, Hell yeah. Yeah, I was when I was in high school, like those those action films from that, like 1991 to like 2001 were my jam. So, oh, man, you know, if you ever want to do underappreciated action films on movies with gravy, you just hit me up and we'll talk about some Howie Long. <laughs> I don't think you realize you've just booked yourself on that podcast for at some point in this year. So congratulations. Let's do it. I'll start watching a night. Uh, but but the topic we're talking about here today, top five suburban ennui films. For those pausing their treadmills or lawnmowers right now to Google ennui, help them out, Billy Ray. How would you define a suburban ennui film? Um, you know, I would say, and my, my definition is probably the Google definition for all I know. It's just, it's a, it's a feeling of, I would use the word dissatisfaction at life. Um, it's, it's films about people who are depressed or, you know, sort of not accomplishing what they want to accomplish with life. And it's affecting their whole lives. It's affecting their family. Um, you know, suburban ennui is a sort of, it's a little more finite than that. Obviously it is set in the suburbs and it usually involves a family dynamic and sort of, uh, and usually emanating from at least one character, sometimes multiple characters. Um, there are obviously um, films you know, when, when people think of suburban films, like the first film that I think of is Poltergeist. But Poltergeist isn't really a suburban ennui film. I mean, it's these folks aren't list, these folks aren't listless. These these aren't folks who are depressed. They are folks who only become that way because of a malevolent spirit. So, you know, it's a thin line, uh, but I, I think, you know, it when you see it. Yeah, there's definitely some room for interpretation there. What's what's your relationship to the suburbs? Like why why this topic? Did it have anything to do with your recent move to the Northwest? Um I wish I had a really eloquent answer with a lot of personal experience. I've never well that's not true. So I've only lived in the suburbs once and it was for about a 6-year period of time when I was living in Birmingham. I was in my 20s, uh early 30s. Uh, back when I was running my theater company, and I lived with my roommate in an outskirt of Birmingham called Pelham, which was very much the suburbs. You know, the houses all looked the same, the streets all looked the same. Like that was the closest I've ever come to real suburban living. I grew up in the rural South, and apart from that and that stretch in the suburbs, I've mostly lived in an urban setting. So I don't have a lot of experience, but I think I always, when I was watching movies as a kid, I always related to people who were living in the suburbs maybe not re maybe related is not the right word i always envied them because i always mm. thought that seemed fun like i didn't have any kids my age on my street essentially like it was all you know it was my relatives or my principals or things like that um i always envied this idea of all these families living on the street all these kids living in close proximity like you kind of know each other's business and like i just i always thought that was awesome when i was a kid and so that's why i gravitated toward those films got it I've always kind of grown up in the suburbs, but I never experienced the uh, the malaise that a lot of people in these films that I picked today experience. So it'll be interesting to see what we have come up with on our list. You, you think we'll have any crossover? I mean, it's certainly possible. I mean, you know, there are several sort of like obvious uh, choices. Yeah. And I, I typically like to avoid the obvious, but it came to a point when I was making my list where I was like, some of these are just stone cold, like bona fides like i can't really not think about including them 
my ultimate list is around 20, 22 titles that I would be pulling from um, initially, which I've kind of winnowed down uh, to a, to a handful, but you know, yeah, it, it's, I, we might have some overlap, but it's also entirely possible that, that we're have completely different lists. Yeah, we'll see. Um, like you, I like to steer away from the most obvious picks. There's one on my list that is a staple that I had to have on here, but there's another one that I left off entirely for, re- well, I just don't like it very much, where a lot of people seem to. And then there's another choice that I left off my list that you're going to see on a lot of like suburban on Wii lists that... I haven't seen. So if you bring that up, I'll let you know that that title and you can give me another reason to watch it. Well, I should also I should preface by saying this, because anyone who listens to this, who knows me, knows that my favorite film of all time is Ordinary People. I did not consider that only because to me, I don't consider that film to be suburban ennui. And I know a lot of people out there are going to be like, oh, you're full of shit. It's 100% that. But the way I look at it is, is for me, suburban ennui is, it is people going through this dissatisfaction when there's no really clear cause for it. And, you know, ordinary people is all tied to the death of this character uh, that happens before the film even starts, the older brother. That's, it's all tied to that. It's a movie about grief. It's not really a suburban on Wii film. So anybody out there who's like, why is the hell is he not playing his favorite movie of all time? That's why, because it would have a hundred percent been my number one if I thought it qualified, but I don't. So that one also does not appear on my list. So I guess we're on the same page there. I think there's only one on my list that could be considered one that um, would kind of break those rules, but we'll, we'll get there when we get there. Billy Ray, you ready to get into this list? Hey, let's, let's dive the fluck in. You know what's going to happen? Right, let's do it. I'm going to kick things off here. I'm going to go with the the newest film on my list here at number five. This is one that really surprised me last year, and I'm I'd be interested to know if you're a fan as well. This is a film from 2021 called Nobody. So they took maybe 20 bucks and an old watch, Mr. Madsen. Did you even take a swing? No. Could have taken her, Dad. Heard you had some excitement last night. I wish they'd have picked my place, you know? Why didn't you take him out? I was just trying to keep the damage to a minimum. Yeah, how's that working out for you? You okay? Because you don't look okay. There's a long dormant piece of me that so very badly wants out. What are you still doing here, old man? I'm gonna fuck you up. The opening scene of Nobody, I think, really hammers home the repetitiveness of suburban life for Hutch Manziel. As you see this quick cut action of him making his coffee, him getting his breakfast, he's missing the trash pickup, he's parking in the same spot, he's hitting the time clock, and it's going Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. It's really, really effective at showing how boring everything is. 
for Hutch Manziel. His marriage feels loveless. He and his wife literally sleep with a wall between them. He's on one side of the bed, she's on the other, and there's a pillow in between them creating this divide. He's, he's a man that seems at first so defeated and lifeless in this mundane life that when burglars break into his house at night, he has a clear opportunity to overtake the threat and he just chooses not to, losing all respect he had well, I guess the sliver of respect he had at that point from his son and his brother-in-law. The rest of the film is kind of about him breathing life back into himself because he goes out, he goes to get the this watch back that his daughter, that they thought was stolen during this home invasion. And on his way home, he gets into a scrap with some Russian gangsters in a bus that is just the best fight scene of 2021. And you learn about why he is in this situation because he was, um, I forget what they call it, but we'll just call it like the, uh, he was a, a government agent. And at one point he let a guy live with the promise of cleaning up his act. And then he went to go check on him a year later and he peeks into the window and he sees this man living this low key, happy life. And Hutch wanted that. And so he retired and he became this just suburban guy that works at a factory as an accountant. Shit, this is, it's such an entertaining movie. Bob Odenkirk, really great as an action star, surprised me. Christopher Lloyd in here, packing a fucking double barrel shotgun. Yep. And uh, Riza, his brother in there, like, fantastic climax to this movie. Great needle drop with Pat Benatar's Heartbreaker during a car chase. I just love Nobody. And when you said Suburban Ennui, it's, it, this is one of the first ones that came to my mind just because it was fresh and uh, man, it's just so entertaining to see him go from suburban dad to kick-ass action star. Sounds like you like Nobody as well. I did like Nobody. Um, I saw it. In, it was one of the few theater, one of the few films I saw in theaters last year. Um, and yeah, I, I it absolutely qualifies for suburban only, only because of that opening bit. Because you know the rest of it yeah. is pretty much just an action film. I think my, I think the only hangups I had with the film and I agree with pretty much everything you just said you know I I I really wish it had been a little less like John Wick in its story structure um that that's my one complaint is that I don't mind if something is sort of going in the same direction as another film but like it is sort of beat by beat a lot of that exact same story structure and I wish they and it's a lot of the same people involved with it so it's like but that said Bob Odenkirk kind of makes you not care about that because he <laughs> yeah, is he's great i mean yeah talk about an unconventional action hero and um you know i'm so excited about the new season of better call saul which is only a few days away um yeah i was really surprised by it in a good way you know with my hangups aside like i i was really entertained by it it's it's tight it's lean it's mean there's not a lot of meat on a lot a lot of fat and um it was a lot of fun yeah it was absolutely if nothing else you can say this film is just a ball of fun yeah, definitely. So that's my number five. And that's this is really, I think, the only one that's that's kind of structured just around the like the um, the frame of suburban ennui. The rest are more fully suburban ennui films. Uh, Billy Ray, what's your number five? So um, I just pulled up the actual uh, Google definition of ennui because it ties into this film. So it is a feeling of listlessness and dissatisfaction arising from a lack of occupation or excitement. And that word excitement 
is very important for my first film. Um, I should preface by saying I just talked about how I wasn't able to get my first, my favorite film of all time on this list, but I will now talk about my second favorite film of all time, which also falls into this category, and it is Gary Ross's Pleasantville. This fall... Do you mind? Tune in. We're in Pleasantville? And take a trip to Pleasantville. I'm pasty! We're a perfect town. I didn't think you'd want to come here until we'd been pinned. You can pin me anytime you want to. It's about to discover... Messing with the whole universe. Maybe it needs to be messed with, David. It's true colors. You can't stop something that's inside you. Pleasantville. Spreading all over the place. Look at her books. Look at her sweater. Rated PG-13. Starts Friday, October 23rd. Pleasantville um, came out in 1998. It's it's about two siblings played by Toby Maguire and Reese Witherspoon, who, um, after a fight over a magical remote control, get sucked back into the black and white. 1950s uh, television series Pleasantville, where they take on the roles of the um, of Mary Sue and Bud, who are the brother and sister character in this family. And um, at first, what this film is so amazing at is subverting your expectation every step of the way. Because at first, it sets itself up, and you really think that it's just going to be this fun, lighthearted sort of comedy, fish out of water sort of thing. And, um, and and it's played beautifully by everyone involved. But as the film goes on, it starts getting less funny and less fun and darker and more Ray Bradbury in tone than anything else. And by the time the ending rolls around, it's dealing with some very heavy subject matter and, and dealing with some really touchy stuff. Oh, yeah. And it's doing... And, you know, I, I, this movie is a marvel to me, how this movie works as well as it does. And, um, you know, most of the, you know, most of the, the sort of, uh, I guess the drama in this film is that as Bud and Mary Sue, you know, these these people who are now in this new world, as they start, you know, basically just being themselves and introducing these Pleasantville people to like a modern way of doing things, the black and white slowly starts turning to color. And these people start learning new things. There's an amazing scene in a cafe where all the books are blank in the town. And so, you know, they've got these titles that Toby Maguire's character is then telling them what he remembers the story being about and the pages are filling in. And, you know, and, and so as the town slowly starts turning more into color than black and white, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the old guard in the town who really don't, like this change that's coming to the town start enacting all of these very sort of um draconian laws um which you know obviously is touching on civil rights and touching on race and all sorts of things with that um the cast is just tremendous you've got joan allen and william h macy who play the parents jeff daniels is incredible as um the the man who owns the local uh malt shop then you've also got jt walsh the late great jt walsh paul walker marley shelton and of course, the legend himself, Don Knotts, as the TV repairman, <laughs> who's just fantastic in this. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, that the, the suburban ennui part of this is, you know, everybody in this film is lacking excitement, but they don't realize that they're lacking it until these new characters come into their lives. And as those characters come into their lives and... um and then they're forced with, you know, once they've started changing and they're forced with this idea of having to change back, you really see the impact that this change and this hopefulness is having on them. And um, yeah, I just, I adore this film. It's my second favorite film of all time. I've watched it a hundred times. It's one that I'm constantly stumping for. 
and it was it's gonna be my number five yeah this one was also on my list so um i i'll pivot for my number four and pull something else out of a hat i just want to add to your love of pleasantville by saying that Watching it today, so I saw this in theaters when it came out. Yeah, me too. But watching it today, I think it's even more relevant than it was then. Like you said, it touches on things like race. They literally have uh, like segregation in this movie where the mayor, Big Bob, is segregating things that are pleasant from those that are, quote, unpleasant. They even have signs that say no colors allowed. Exactly, exactly. Um, And, you know, him condemning things by yelling law and order. Um, gosh, it sounds a lot like some folks these days. It's a great movie. Great, great cast. Toby Maguire is fantastic in here. I, yeah, love this movie. So I guess I will pivot a bit for my number four here to get another one on the list. Uh, this is kind of Suburban Ennui is kind of the catalyst for this movie, but I want to mention it anyway because I think it's underseen. The film is called Havoc from 2005. So you want to know about us? We live very sheltered lives. They're rich. Hey, Eric. Great party. No one's going to notice anything. We're just bored. We are totally bored. They're young. How's Toby? Is he still your boyfriend? Dad, I don't believe in relationships. <laughs> I can't believe someone that hot is your friend. And they want something real. Let's go downtown. There's a whole different world down there. There's a monetary zone of geography, oh. which we're not allowed to pass. <laughs> you guys want to come to a party? In every city, there are unspoken rules about where you can go. Why do you hang out here all the time? It's my home, it's where I live. What do you want me to be at? Beverly Hills. And who you can be with. It doesn't even seem real. It seems like a dream. Man, this movie gets dark. This movie gets real dark. And I think it's really good. The, The kickoff is that these two girls, Allison and Emily, played by Anne Hathaway and Bijou Phillips, They're bored of upper-class suburban life, and they decide they want some adventure. So they drive to East L.A. to buy weed, and there they meet a drug dealer named Hector. Uh, Now, I didn't grow up wealthy, so it is kind of funny seeing this this group of four white teens just totally disconnected from reality who decide to drive into East L.A. Billy Ray, I'm guessing that at some point you've been to East L.A.? Uh, yes, I've been to every direction of L.A. Yeah, as have I. And it's it's got to be funny for you watching movies like this where these people act as if they're going in just risking death. Yeah. Like the eternity or, or the entirety of East L.A. is Baldwin Village from Training Day. These girls think that they're street smart because they listen to hip hop music, which I, I guess I can relate to because after I watch any action film, I feel like I can go out into the parking lot and kick anybody's ass. But I never try it. And they're just fascinated with this unfamiliarity of this normal world. So they go into East L.A. They live to see another day, but they decide to go back and play with fire a little more because of that boredom. And they even go to a party with Hector and his boys, which unfortunately leads leads to uh, dire consequences. There's a great scene in which Hector's gang tries to find the girls to kill them, but they get lost in the suburbs because everything looks the same. It's a great role for Freddie Rodriguez and Hathaway. It gives a really fantastic performance in this. And uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt has a really small role here as this bucket hat wearing dweeb who thinks he's a gangster. I think it's even more fun, by the way, if you think of this as an unofficial sequel. 
to the Princess Diaries. That's <laughs> Havoc from 2005. That's my number four. I'm going to pivot to that one. Well, that's a good pivot. I will say, though, I've never seen Havoc. I am familiar with it. Mm. Um, I know of it. I remember when it came out. Um, that was during a period of time where I was not on the Anne Hathaway bandwagon, so I think that's probably why I avoided it. Um, I've since come around on that, so I certainly would not avoid an Anne Hathaway project now. Um, but you know, I was younger and dumber. Um, but so yeah, I, I need to put that on my, on my watch list because I have not seen Havoc, but it sounds delightful. Yeah, I would check it out. I would check it out. It definitely has those, uh, the irks of the early to mid two thousands stuff that I don't like, like the really bad music and, uh, it's, it's not really well shot, but the performances alone are definitely worth the trip um well that film pairs up nicely with my number four pick which um i feel like sometimes i'm the only one in the world who loves this film as much as i do um it just made an immediate impact on me when i saw it in theaters and it still has you know there is a death in this film that was more visceral and gutting to me than any one of almost more than any other death i've experienced in a film and it makes it even harder now to watch it because the actor who is in that scene has also passed away. And that is uh, Nick Cassavetti's Alpha Dog. We were all kids from good families. We played together. We grew up together. And in 1999, Every day I'm we were all living our own version of the American dream. Oh, you see that? But Johnny ran the show. Made 500. A drug dealer? No. Did he sell a little? Yeah. What up, Jake? You know that thing I told you I was going to take care of? What happened? It's washout. Okay, well, I still got to get paid. Jake. All of it. Be careful, Johnny. I'm not one of your little friends. Point that thing at me. You better pull the trigger. Man, everyone else fooling around here, but I ain't buying it. Yo, Johnny, isn't that the brother of the guy who owes you money? Are you kidding me? Hello. Hey, 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 what's up? I didn't do anything. This is all gonna get squared away soon, I promise. Kid's older brother owes money, and Johnny's holding him like a marker or something until he gets paid. So you're like Ransom or something. That's hot. It's okay. It's like another story to tell my grandkids. Stolen boy. Oh, yeah. And so Alpha Dog is set in 1999 in San Gabriel Valley in Southern California, and um, it, it follows these gr- this group of sort of disaffected uh youths who are who are they come from uh, they come from a more affluent suburban area so they their parents have money they don't really have to do anything they're just sort of living off their parents money going about their day-to-day stuff and you know and not really striving for much of anything and the main character is johnny true love played by emil hirsch who is sort of the leader of the gang um inspired by an actual person jesse james hollywood and um he's got various members of the gang justin timberlake is in the is one of them you've got sean hattesey as well and um the the main dynamic of the story involves uh the bit of ben foster's character who owes emil hirsch's character some money but can't give him all of the money they get into this fight and then emil hirsch has them kidnap Ben Foster's younger brother, played by the late, great Anton Yelchin. And what happens after that is just this downward spiral of just horror for the next, you know, hour and a half. Because 
in your gut, you feel like it's building towards something that you don't want it to build to, but your brain's like, it's not going to go there. Like, it's not going to go there. And it goes there. And the way it goes there is so infuriating. I don't know that I've ever been this angry watching a movie. Like, I was fuming in my movie chair when I was watching this because it's just all so avoidable and so unnecessary and just a bunch of stupid-ass kids doing this stupid-ass thing that they don't have any sense of consequences for because they weren't raised to have any. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a, a great supporting cast. You've got Sharon Stone, Bruce Willis, uh, who play uh, some of the parents in the film. You, I mean, but it's a who's who of supporting actors, too. I mean, let's be clear. You've got Chris Marquette, Dominic Swain, Olivia Wilde, Amanda Seyfried, uh, Vincent Kartheiser, Lucas Haas, Harry Dean Stanton. Like, it just goes on and on and on. Like, it's insane. And, um, you know, it is based on a on a somewhat, uh, or it is based on a true story, not a somewhat true story. Uh, there were some legal issues that surrounded the film because of that fact, and there were some delays in it getting released. And I think it probably caused it not to get the sort of wide release that maybe they wanted to give it. It still did moderately okay at the box office, probably because it had Justin Timberlake in it, and he was huge at the time. Um, but it's really just a harrowing experience. Like, it is... It's a tough watch, especially now, you know, with Anton Yelchin having passed away, like because his character is just so much the innocent in the film yeah. like, is so like likable and charming. And like you're just rooting for that character the whole way. And it just makes that ending so much more devastating. And um, yeah, I mean, some people might say, well, this isn't the suburbs. It totally is the suburbs. But it is, you know, their affluent suburbs are still suburbs. Yep. Um, there's different, diff- definitely different levels. And this certainly qualifies in that. And this also speaks very much to sort of the listlessness and the lack of occupancy. Because this is just a bunch of kids who don't have anything to do. So they start doing stupid shit. Yeah, I think if Havoc counts, then this one's got to count in terms of the, the suburb setting. I haven't seen this since 2006, but it's still burned in my brain how Anton Yelchin's character legitimately thinks that his kidnappers are starting to like him. Yeah, yeah. And they are. And that's the sad thing, is they are starting to like him. They all do like him. They make this decision liking this person. And that's what yeah. makes it so infuriating. Oh, I know. And when it came out, I was familiar with the the true story because of things like America's Most Wanted and those those type of crime shows that were on then. And you just watch it hoping for that revisionist history that sometimes happens in movies. And it just doesn't. Oh, yeah. Great pick. Number three for me is the oldest film on my list. This is from 1968. It's a movie called The Swimmer. Yep, yep. A man suddenly plunged off a deep end of life. The Swimmer. A story that will be talked about. When you talk about The Swimmer, will you talk about yourself? The Swimmer stars Burt Lancaster. I'm a very special human being. Janet Langard. I bet you never knew I had a big crush on you. Janice Rule. I want you to get out of here now. I mean it. I'm expecting someone. Who? None of your business, who. A man? Do you think I've been in a deep freeze while you've been playing house on the hill? Yes, a man. When you talk about the swimmer, will you talk about yourself? The Swimmer, in Technicolor, 
suggested for mature audiences. This one is based on a short story. It's kind of a more modern adaptation of The Odyssey when you watch it. This, this journey that this person goes on stars Burt Lancaster as this guy named Ned. He's this pretty good looking old older dude. And he just in the first scene, he comes up with this plan to swim his way home through his suburban town. So like between where the film starts and his house, there are, I think, 10 pools. And his plan is to swim through all of them to get back home to his wife and daughters. Initial looks. So he starts out at this first pool and the first pool is, you know, his people in his suburb. He tells them his plan and they look at him like he's crazy for for wanting to do this. But as the film goes on, you realize like it, it's totally different connotation the second time around because you realize those looks aren't for thinking that he's nuts for swimming home, but more for another reason. And as he goes through each of these pools, we learn something new about him and your opinion of Ned will change along the way. Because at first you think he's just this good looking dude who's eccentric, but he seems like he has it all. And by the end, it is way more sad than you might expect going in. And you start to see these cracks. It, it, at one of these pools, he meets up with the girl who used to babysit his kids. And she decides to join him. She's like, oh, it sounds like a great idea. And so she swims through one of the pools with him. And as they're walking to the next one, she starts telling him about how, you know, when, when I was babysitting your kids, I had this huge crush on you. And now I have some of these uh, problems. And he's like, well, I'll protect you. I'll take care of you. He starts making plans for them. And she's like creeped out. Like, I don't have a crush on you now, dude. I had a crush on you when I was 12. And she bolts. Uh, and, and it's things like that that you start to see these cracks along the way in Ned's life. It's shot really interestingly. It's this really kind of surreal um, landscape that a lot of film critiques of the suburban lifestyle have this kind of hazy dreamlike stuff. But it's really blunt about what it has to say about suburban hypocrisy. And you you hear the neighbors at some of these stops along the way, and they are all just hanging around outside of their pools in very familiar, very similar fashion, bragging about their upcoming pool renovations and the whole keeping up with the Joneses stuff, increasing desire to one-up their neighbors and just talk about their possessions. I think it's a really interesting look at suburbia and this character Ned's breakdown as he swims through the pools. It's also got a really great soundtrack that uh, harkens back to the golden age of Hollywood for me a bit. 1968's The Swimmer. Have you seen this one? Uh, many times. I'm a huge Frank Perry fan. Um, you know, Frank Perry, for folks who don't know, who directed the cult classic Mommy Dearest, but also directed mm -hmm. Diary of a Mad Housewife, played as it lays, like a really phenomenal filmmaker. Um, yeah, The Swimmer is incredible. Um, I, I would, I, I, I honestly usually go to bat and say it's one of the greatest films ever made. Um, Burt Lancaster, I, for my money, is you know, I know a lot of people, there are a lot of other actors in his generation, but I think Burt Lancaster is up there. Like, when I think of the greatest all-timers, it's Burt Lancaster, it's um, Jason Robards, it's, um, you know, I mean, th like, that's who, Jack Lemmon, like, Lancaster is just so phenomenal in this film. Like, he brings so much to yeah. it. You get a really, you get, you get a, you get a young Joan Rivers in this. Oh, yeah. Which is a yeah. lot of fun. Um, it's just, it's a really remarkable film. It's such an unusual premise, um, but it works so well and it's so beautifully told. And, you know, the Marvin Hamlish score is so memorable. 
Um, yeah, I, I this is a great choice. And what I, I didn't even think about this one, uh, which is shocking because it is so totally right in the wheelhouse of this topic. And I didn't even think about it. So great choice. Great choice. Well, I'm glad you're a fan. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. And Grindhouse Releasing put out a great Blu-ray set of The Swimmer, and it has the soundtrack with it. So if you are into physical media listeners, go and get The Swimmer. You will not be disappointed. Oh, also, and I should say, you talked about how beautiful this film was shot. It was shot by the same DP who shot Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. Of course it was. Of course, of course it was, it right? Was. Of course that makes total sense. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, I'm going definitely a little uh, different direction with uh, my number three pick. This is a film that for a very long time was really not available and not easy to find. And, um, you know, it is now available now, thanks to, you know, all of the wonderful ways that we have to watch uh, stuff now. But, you know, when I was a kid, I remember seeing this on television when I was about seven or eight years old and trying for like 10 to 12 years to find it again and not being able to find it. And that is Jonathan Kaplan's Over the Edge. Welcome to New Granada, where people come to escape city life. It has safe streets, clean air, good schools. It's a perfectly planned community, but something strange is happening. Something that wasn't part of the plan. Seems to me like you all were in such a hopped up hurry to get out of the city that you turn your kids into exactly what you're trying to get away from. Something that could drive this town over the edge. You're to take these home to your parents, to let them know about a special emergency meeting to discuss the problems about your people. Kid who tells on another kid. It's a dead kid. I don't know how many of us are willing to admit just how deep in trouble some of the kids in the city are. Tension is rising. You people talk about these kids like they're a bunch of animals. It's taken us to the community of New Granada uh, in Colorado. So um, Over the Edge is about this planned community called New Granada. Like I said, it is in Colorado. And it's about these kids who live in this town and there's nothing to do like it is again like it's it's very it's similar to alpha dog in a way because it's about a bunch of kids who have nothing to do so they turn to doing terrible things like uh like drugs and crime and you know skipping school and all of these things and you know their parents have other things to go to do and they're not really paying attention to their kids and the main two characters um, of the film are Carl, played by Michael Kramer, and Richie, played by a very young Matt D- Dillon. And, um, you know, and, and you know, Carl is sort of not like the other kids. He's not really as much of a rebel, as much as a hellraiser. But he's, he's really good friends with Richie, and Richie starts sort of bringing him into that lifestyle. And, um, you know, long story short, an act, something happens. Um, uh, the Richie character is shot and it basically leads the kids in the town to, uh, essentially riot and start destroying the town and take, and, you know, the parents are trapped inside this community center and the kids are rioting outside trying to get in. And, um, which is one of just the most iconic and like heart pounding sequences, um, that I've ever seen in a film. And, um, 
I mean, it's just all of this pinup rage and pinup frustration at the fact that a lot of it is the fact that these kids know they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, but they blame their parents because the parents aren't giving them the structure that they need. They aren't giving them the support that they need or, you know, doing what parents should do. I, I wrote a piece once for Cinepunks years ago about Poltergeist, and it was about how the Freelings were the worst movie parents in cinema history. <laughs> and um, these parents would be a close second. Like the parents in this just do not really care about their kids. You know, they're the type of parents who had kids because they knew they needed to have kids. And then now they're just like, okay, fend for yourself. We'll, we'll put food on the table, but you fend for yourself. And, you know, this, this is a very specific type of suburb because it is a planned community and it has that feeling of one of those like 1970s, early 80s planned communities, like something out of a poltergeist um, that have their own sort of weird vibes and sort of weird like um, oppression to them. And um, I think this film really shows teenage angst in a way that no other film has. And it's just endlessly watchable. It's endlessly enjoyable, and I, I still know a lot of people out there who have not seen it. It's also one hell of an amazing soundtrack. Um, Cheap Trick, The Cars, Van Halen, Ramones. Like, it's just an absolute nonstop hard rock soundtrack that, that kind of propels this movie like an engine. And um, yeah, it's just, it's just fantastic. Well, mark me down as somebody who also hasn't seen it, so I need oh. to put this... Yeah, I need wow. to put this on my list. You do. You're going to go ape shit for this film. I can't wait to see it now. And it's when you started talking about your number three, I thought you were you were describing my number one. So I'm glad that our number your number three and my number one have kind of like the exact same lead in. <laughs> Um, that makes me think I might know what your number one is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you definitely might. Um, OK, that's over the edge. I'm going to have to to check that out. For number two, I guess we're going to knock off the most obvious one here on my list. This is one that if you look up any suburban dissatisfaction type of movie, this is going to be on that list. It's 2008's Revolutionary Road. I want to feel things. Really feel them. How's that for an ambition? Frank Wheeler, I think you're the most interesting person I've ever met. A man only gets a couple of chances. It won't be long before he's sitting around wondering how he got to be second rate. Whoever said I was meant to be a big deal anyway? If you don't try at anything, you can't fail. Suddenly I'm the bright young man. For me, the movie as a whole, I think that the parts are greater than it's some. I don't think it's a, a great movie per se, but I, I do think it's important because it has a few magnificent performances and it has a lot to say about the suburbs. So for those unfamiliar, it's Leonardo DiCaprio as Frank and Kate Winslet plays April. They're the Wheelers. They've always kind of seen themselves as far removed from the conventions of the suburbs, but that's exactly what happens when they buy a house in Connecticut after they have two unplanned children. And he's working 10 hours a day in a job that he hates. She's a homemaker. She... Uh, wanted to be an actress at one point that hasn't worked out. So their whole plan is to escape to Paris. And this plan is kind of what sets the, uh, the, the tragedy in motion for this movie. It's about a book or it's based on a book rather that's widely accepted as like this condemnation of the suburbs. But when I watched the movie, it's not like what I took away from it is that 
it's not as much a condemnation of the suburbs as it is this couple who blames their unhappiness on the suburbs. For example, like they were a longshoreman and an aspiring actress, and they had to, I mean, I put had in quotes, they made the decision to settle down into the suburban lifestyle that they've made fun of. And because of this, they are so unhappy in their marriage. You know, you can't run from your problems as an adult, but they decide that they're going to try and escape their problems just by moving to another country. It's a really, really emotional movie. As you see this marriage just unraveling with fights, affairs, general distaste for each other as you see these things that they see as weights holding them down in suburbia. Like they literally see their kids as uh, as like these anchors. It's a really well-crafted movie, really well done. It's super depressing, but again, great performances. And Michael Shannon has a has a really small role in here that's really effective. And I'm, I love him in anything. Revolutionary Road, that's my obvious pick here at number two. What are your thoughts on Revolutionary Road? I've only seen it the once. I saw it in theaters when it came out. Uh, So I have limited memories of it. I will agree about Michael Shannon, who was up for an Oscar that year for that performance. Um, Also, the great Kathy Bates, uh, one of my all timers playing his mom in this as well. Um, I mean, yeah, this is this is one of the yeah, this is one of the obvious, but not obvious isn't necessarily bad. Like this is, you know, this is like the definition of this topic. So it's hard not to consider something like this. I remember, you know, I remember loving every performance in this film. Um, I I think I remember, I, if I remember correctly, and I have to watch it again because my opinion on movies changes so much, especially after such a long period of time. I've always, Sam Mendes, Sam Mendes has always been a filmmaker that has been at a little bit of a distance for me because while I really love a lot of his films, even the ones that I enjoy, there's always something missing for me. And then I think about like uh, Road to Perdition, um, you know, mm-hmm. something like that. There's always just something that is missing to me. And there is a more obvious Sam Mendes film that a lot of people would probably wonder why is not on this list. But um, yeah, <laughs> I didn't consider that film for fr- straight up the Kevin Spacey of it all. And yep. <laughs> I, but it's not even just that. Like, I, I'm not someone who just discounts movies because of one person. I rewatched this about two years ago. It's not a, I, American Beauty is not a good movie. It's not like I, 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 Kevin Spacey aside, it does not hold up. Um, I'm betting Revolutionary Road does just knowing everybody who's involved. I do remember thinking the score was incredible. The Thomas Newman score. I remember that. Of course, it's shot by Roger Deakins. So, you know, it's shot within an inch of its life. Um, yeah, this is one I would want to check out again, because like I said, I saw it when it first came out in 2000 i guess 2008 actually it came out in the end of 2008 so it might have been january yeah. when i saw it but um but yeah yeah that's a great choice yeah obvious but that's okay obvious is okay yeah and american beauty is the one that i referred to at the top that i did not have on my list that was obvious because i just don't like it so we're in we're in the same boat there i think i watched it maybe like a year ago and i think the only thing i like about that movie is annette benning's performance i really don't like anything else in there yeah yeah. Okay. Number two for you. Okay. So a little bit of preface on this because I did this whole spiel at the beginning of this episode about how I did not include ordinary people for very specific reasons. And people are going to be like, well, why are you including this film? Because isn't this film essentially just a remake of ordinary people? And the answer is no, no, it is not simply a remake. Um, but I'll go into the reason that I considered this and not ordinary people. And the film is from 2004. It is Dan Harris's Imaginary Heroes. All right, everybody. Shh. These are the Travi. Really Travis, but plural. Travi. I need 
need papers, rolling papers, to make a joint. What happened to your leg? War injury. Which war? Vietnam. You like that band, Nirvana? If you need some cash to go to a concert, you know, let me know. What? So nice to have you home again. It's Christmas. We do it every year. Please hold your hands in front of you. I'm a mother. Don't you have a mother? My mother respects the law. These were the best years of our lives. At least that's what they told us. Show me the life I would have had without your big mouth. You're a pretty horrible father. Well, I guess we're telling the truth now. What do you think about cosmetic surgery? So Dan Harris, uh, for folks who don't know, is a um, he wrote X2, the second X-Men film, um, and uh, also wrote Superman Returns. So he wrote a lot of big films, but he only really directed one other film, and it was 2017 Speech and Debate. Um, Imaginary Heroes uh, is about a suburban family. Uh, you've got the mother played by Sigourney Weaver, the dad played by Jeff Daniels, the youngest son played by Emil Hirsch, who was also an alpha dog, which I talked about earlier. Uh, their daughters played by Michelle Williams. Like the cast is just insane. And there's an older brother named Matt Travis played by Kit Perdue, who is like, he's gorgeous. He's popular. He's the best swimmer on the swim team. Like everything in the world is going for him. And then bam, he kills himself. And the film is sort of about the family sort of coming to terms with why he killed himself and what was at the cause of that. So the mother um, turns to pot to kind of deal with her grief and her pain and becomes a little, not cold and distant, but a little just not as involved as maybe she once was. Uh, the Jeff Daniels character, who is the father, who was like always writing his son and like so invested in his son's life, uh, has just basically shut down, has stopped going to work, is drinking. And then um, the younger brother, uh, played by Emil Hirsch, is just sort of going off the rails a bit, like doesn't really know how to cope with it. He's for starters, he's holding the secret that, that doesn't get revealed till the end of the film, but um, starts experimenting with his sexuality and experimenting with drugs and just trying to figure out, you know, how he's trying to absorb this. And so the reason that I considered this is because the suburban on we is really the catalyst for the whole dramatic arc of this film, because that is essentially what drives this kid to kill himself. And so, and then that trickles down to the rest of the family. We're in ordinary people. It's an accident. Buck is killed in a boating accident. It, it, it's not something that is brought on by anything. That family is by all intents and purposes, the perfect family. Everything's going great until that character dies. In this, you can tell that everything wasn't perfect before he killed himself. They might've been faking it and they might've been putting on a good image, but it was not perfect at all. And, um, you know, like I said, the the cast is insane and incredible, but there are so many just phenomenal scenes in this. Jeff Daniels and Emil Hirsch have just a phenomenal scene at the end of the film after this big secret is revealed that I won't spoil here, uh, but a big secret is revealed that kind of puts a fissure in the family. And, and there's a conversation after that's revealed that's really, really heartbreaking. 
And um, but but there's also some really like beautiful scenes, like when Emil Hirsch and Ryan uh, Danahoe are like experimenting. Like oh, New, there's a scene where they're on New Year's night, they sort of kiss. They're experimenting with their sexuality. It's really beautifully shot and really well handled. Um, yeah, shot by Tim Orr, who is one of like the great underrated cinematographers. He shot David Gordon Green's George Washington and all the real girls. And um, has, has shot a lot of David Gordon Green stuff throughout the years, in fact. And um, it, it's, just, uh, it's just a really, I think, small, beautiful little film that doesn't get a lot of the credit that it deserves. It doesn't, you know, and a lot, a lot of people, not a lot of people saw it. It very, did very little business when it came out. And, you know, and I think Dan Harris could have been a really amazing filmmaker and still is. He made Speech and Debate in 2017, but hasn't made anything since. I think he moved to Portland and opened some sort of like completely unfilm related shop. But um, yeah, this was a film I would just love for people to check out who haven't seen it. Uh, it's, it's a it's a it's a really special film. It's Imaginary Heroes from 2004. This is another one that uh, has to go on my watch list. because oh. This is another one I haven't seen. And that's surprising because I'm a, I'm actually a really big Emil Hirsch fan. So, yep, I am, too. I got to put this on my list. That's a that's a great cast. He's a long time crush. Yeah, he's a long time crush. Sigourney Weaver in this is like crushes it like Sigourney Weaver should have been up for an Oscar this year for this film. Um, had it done better, I expect she would have been. But it's yeah, she's really tremendous in this. Yeah, I'll have to I'll have to watch this. I like Kip Pardue a lot too. Yeah. I'm surprised that he never went on to bigger things because he I always thought he was going to be a star. Well, um, he is a star in my eyes because he's a big old piece of eye candy for me. He, he's a big old piece of eye candy for me too. Man. Hell yeah! Okay, grand finale time here. I think you probably know what's coming here, and I'm just going to ask you a question that's posed in the opening scene of this film, Billy Ray. You ever get the feeling that everything in America is completely fucked up? <laughs> Pump up the volume from 1990. Guess who? You sit next to him all year. You out there? You listening? And never notice him. You can almost taste it. The rankness in the air. He's the guy who lights up the night. He's got a pirate radio station. They say that I am deluged. Oh, yeah. Demented. Hallelujah. Well, guess what I say? Christian Slater. Get crazy! Pump up the vlog. Rated R. Preview Sunday, August 19th. Opens August 22nd. First off, it should speak to all podcasters. Because it's like the, the precursor uh, to the podcasting uh, landscape. Uh, it's about pirate radio. I'm kind of surprised that this hasn't been revisited more often or even remade for the current world because of how, you know, Hollywood likes remakes. It certainly inspired me. I have my Diet Wild Cherry Pepsi here, my Blackjack gum, and that familiar feeling that something rank is going down out there. The film is about Christian Slater. He plays uh, Mark Hunter. He's a nerd. He's been moved from New York to this small developing suburb in, uh, it's a suburb of Phoenix. I think it's called Mesa. But by night, he's Happy Harry Hardon, or Hard Harry for short. He runs this pirate radio show that's growing in popularity. And on the air, he's playing this really cool music. He's pretending to masturbate. He's going on rants about things like the suburbs, conformity, originality, the state of his school, um, authority, all kinds of stuff. It also stars Samantha Mathis as his high school crush, and she is just such a great character. She's gorgeous. She's also really smart. She's really sure of herself. She's really honest. Uh, her character, Nora, is great. There's some great shots of, of new homes being built. So, he, you know, he's walking through his neighborhood, hands in his pockets, and he's walking by all these houses that look exactly the same. And then he passes by homes being built that are 
all going to be exactly the same as those he just walked by, sights that no doubt add to this angst that he has. And on his show, he's he's ragging a lot about conformity. He's blasting his parents for once being activists and now moving to the burbs and working for the man. I mean, this this movie has a lot to say about a lot. And I've always found Christian Slater's character to be really relatable, especially in the age of the internet, where now all of a sudden we have like millions of hard Harrys, unfortunately. And it can be tough to turn that radio dial off. But uh, yeah, I think it's a great movie. And I think that it the, the catalyst for his radio show is the fact that he moved from, I, I think they in the movie, they just refer to it as the East Coast a bunch of times. But at some point, they say New York. So he was moved to New York to Arizona. I think that's where this angst outlet comes from for him. And um, shit, it's got a fantastic soundtrack. Leonard Cohen, Ice, Ice T, The Pixies. Descendants, Above the Law, Soundgarden, just some great music in this. I can't say enough good things about Pump Up the Volume, and for a long time, a long time, it was really hard to find. Finally, it's on Blu-ray, so everybody can experience this. Talk hard. Yeah, that's Pump Up the Volume from 1990 at my number one spot. That's a great choice. Um, I love Pump Up the Volume. I have not seen it in several years, um, but I, I adored this film when I was a kid. Not only because I had a huge crush on Christian Slater, but that was part of it. Um, yeah. But also, I love Alan Moyle as a filmmaker. Like this, Empire Records, like just a re- when it comes to making films about, you know, the way music affects us, like Alan Moyle is one of the greats. Um, I, yeah. I do remember. It's almost Rex Manning Day. Oh, that's correct. Um, a great <laughs> Cliff Martinez score um, for this yeah. film as well. Um, yeah, I, I, I need. I actually, this is one I have actually thought about rewatching multiple times over the last few months because, I, like, you know, I do what a lot of people do. I just flip through all of my streaming channels and I'm like, eh, and I just can't find anything to watch. And I always pass by pump up the volume. <laughs> and I'm like, I should rewatch this, and I just haven't done it yet. So I think maybe tonight when I do that, maybe that's the impetus to actually finish to actually watch it again because it's probably been you know at least 10 years if not more since i've seen the film um but yeah boy it it really does capture that sort of we've we've got a lot of films on here about you know the disaffected youth yeah um which you know which makes sense um and this definitely plays into that not really hard i mean you know uh happy heart on harry is sort of like the prophet for the disaffected youth so um <laughs> it's a that's a great choice wow that's a good number one not what i was expecting oh what were you what, what did you think my number one was going to be well i wasn't fully I, I didn't know that the criteria you were saying that that i might that was that um it was hard to find i was thinking it had to do with more of the kids and so i was like well maybe he's going the suburbia route oh no that one's not on my list on my honorable mentions yeah um, so that was what I was thinking, but um, my number one is obvious, and I'm okay with it being obvious. Um, I think there has never been a more perfect suburban ennui film ever made than this film, and I've got a lot of crossover in my films. Like I've got Emil Hirsch, who was an alpha dog, and also in Imaginary Heroes. This film stars his mother from Imaginary Heroes, Sigourney Weaver. It is Ang Lee's The Ice Storm from 1997. From acclaimed director, Ang Lee, comes a portrait of an American family. Dear Lord, thank you for this Thanksgiving holiday and for letting us stuff ourselves like pigs, okay. even though children okay. in Asia are being napalmed. Okay, it's enough, all right. Paul, roll. They were growing up. Wendy. A person's body is his temple. And they were falling apart. I don't ever want to see you. 
Then why'd you come after me? It's not what you think. It's not some big plot. Stop the car. Stop it. Whenever I think of Suburban Ennui, this is the first movie that pops into my head, without a doubt. It is set over Thanksgiving weekend in 1973. It centers on two families who live next door to each other. You've got the Hoods. You've got Dad Kevin Klein, Mom Joan Allen, and their kids, Christina Ritchie and Toby McGuire. Uh, then there are the Carvers, where you've got Dad J- Jamie Sheridan, Mom Sigourney Weaver, and their son played by Elijah, sons played by Elijah Wood and Adam Handberg. And so it follows these characters over the course of that weekend. There are a lot of things going on. Um, Kevin Klein uh, is having an affair with Sigourney Weaver, uh, which Joan Allen finds out about. There's this incredible sequence where they go to this key party. So this is so suburban. On <laughs> we has a fucking key party. And Allison yep. Janney is hosting the key party. And so they go there, and it's just so tense and wonderful. Toby Maguire's character uh, has gone to uh, the, the place, the, uh, this sort of – this house in the city where Katie Holmes and David Crumholtz are who go to school with him. And so he's there, you know uh, – because he's got a crush on Katie Holmes, obviously. Um, there is this tragic event that happens in the last third of this movie. It's sort of like the deus ex machina of, of the film that sort of comes down. And it's so beautifully shot. And and throughout, like the way that Frederick Elms, who's the cinematographer here, the way he films Winter is unbelievable. And, you know, as a cinematographer, he also, just so people know, shot Eraserhead, shot Blue Velvet, um, has shot um, Todd Salanza's Storytelling, which was honestly also a film that could have been considered for this list, Synecdoche, New York. So like an incredible cinematographer. But um, this film is just, it screams the suburbs. Like everything about it is suburban. And it perfectly captures that early 70s sort of like disdain, like, the, the parents who sort of let their kids do what they want and the parents who are sort of dissatisfied with what's going on and the mundanity of their lives. And boy, it just, I think it's a wallop of a film. I think it's, I think it's Ang Lee's best film. I think it's his, still his masterpiece. I, I think, like I said, I can't think of another film that, that more perfectly captures the topic. And um, it, it's just, yeah, it's just an incredible film. And I, you know, I, I assume that a lot of people have already seen it, and it's not a certainly not an under the radar film by any stretch of the imagination. But um, it's not one that I hear talked about as much these days, which I think is a shame because I think it still holds up remarkably well. Um, I watched this again just a couple of months ago, and it still packs a wallop. It's 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 more subtle and it's more nuanced with what it's doing, but you know, Ang Lee is such a master, and and uh, he really knocks it out of the park with this one. Yeah, I love the Ice Storm. It's a great movie. You ever been to a key party? I have. <laughs> really not. Those were a little bit before my time, I think. <laughs> yeah, if you want to know what a key party is, uh, go watch this movie. Yep. It's really great. Another crossover with Toby Maguire, who's right. also in Pleasantville, and another crossover with Connecticut Suburbs because uh, yep. Revolutionary Road takes place uh, from my list. Absolutely. Man, great list. Did you have any honorable mentions? That- oh, boy. Yeah, I've got several. Um, well, I mentioned Todd Salons. I can considered happiness um yeah uh which you know there are so many stories in that that are not set in the suburbs that i i didn't include it for that reason um obviously i thought of blue velvet i thought of suburbia it was on an honorable mention little children was an honorable mention virgin suicides um the two that i i really came close to playing um 
one of them was Edward Scissorhands. Mm, yeah, um, I was surprised that was not on your list. Yeah, I came close to that. The other one is um, a wonderful little film that um, not a lot of people have seen, and 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 I I think is is should be I think is getting a re release like a a restoration. It's uh, Rebels of the Neon God. It's a Taiwanese drama from 1992, and um, it's just incredible. It's from uh, filmmaker Siming Lang, and um, I, I, it's just it's one of like it was an experience when I saw this in a theater. I saw it on 35 millimeter. And um, it, it was just an experience. I'll say that much. I think it's a film that people need to discover for themselves. I don't want to spoil anything, but it, it's an incredible film. I, I Like I said, I think it's getting a, a restoration if it hasn't already gotten one. It was another one that was really hard to find um, for a number of years. But those were the, the honorable mentions that I had. I will have to seek that one out. I've never heard of that movie. Yeah, it's it's really good. So I've got just a couple that were not mentioned at all. The the one that I mentioned at the top that I embarrassingly have not seen, but happens to come up on a ton of lists. You you did mention it, Blue Velvet. I've actually never seen Blue Velvet. Oh, wow. It's one of these like, weird blind spots for me. Uh, so I need I need to watch that one that narrowly missed my list. And and I was thinking like ten minutes before we started, maybe I should swap nobody out for this one. Is 2019's Greener Grass, oh, which is yeah. a really yeah, it's just a really surreal uh abstract comedy that's not going to be for everybody but it's a whole lot of fun it's about soccer moms one-upping each other something i think that more people need to see so that that's the only one that on my list that hasn't been mentioned billy ray great list uh we're gonna have all the links to all your stuff in the show notes but one more time where do you want people to go to see more of your stuff oh gosh that's a great question well um you know if you like hearing my voice and aren't tired of it yet um and you know incineratorpod.com you can find all of the incinerator stuff there um movies with gravy is my other podcast which uh which is more of a uh free form sort of podcast structure um you know would love you to check those out and hopefully you'll enjoy those uh scripts gone wild which is the sort of uh script reading series that i run for charity uh that we did a lot of virtual readings during the pandemic we've been on a hiatus but we're getting ready to come back to live shows in la in august so yeah. um, so we're excited about that we're going to be jumping back on stage with a live reading of the muppet movie which is going to be a blast nice. and um other than that you know i'm on screen drafts a lot you should listen to screen drafts too it's an awesome podcast those guys do awesome stuff and I'm on there a fair amount, so you you should check that out. I think the I think speaking of suburbia, I think our Penelope Spiris episode just recently dropped, so uh, yeah, you can, you can check that out as well. Um, other than that, yeah, I'm just on the Twitter at Billy Ray Bruton. You know, speaking a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> Not the shattered glass guy. That's it. Not the shattered glass. I get. I used to get that so much. What's your favorite film about suburban ennui? Let me and Billy Ray Bruton know on social media at Force Five Pod on Twitter and Force Five Podcast on Instagram, and your comment just might make it to the show. If you liked what you heard, please review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. It uh, means a lot to me, and tell your friends to listen too, so they can become listeners along with us. Also, if you want more of Billy Ray, he's got his podcast linked in the show notes, but make sure to go check out my appearance on The Incinerator. It comes out later this week if you're listening to this on the Monday it's coming out. For more of me and Billy Ray, and Eric Peacock for that matter, he's a a great podcaster that's going to be on that episode with me. Intro and outro bumpers today come courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, 
and go watch some films about suburban ennui. Oh, 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 oh